Uh, on Friday night, she got to spend some time at uh, my house for dinner with the mission team, and we got to hear all about their ministry and the cool stories of just living in Thailand and the way that they are um, lifting entire villages out of poverty and into uh, self-sustainable living is just unbelievable. And I'm so thankful uh, to be a part of a church that uh, in your weekly giving, your weekly ties, uh, that we're able to support missionaries like Becky and about 10 other missionaries just like them all around the world to bring uh, not only just the gospel into the world, which is a big deal in the way that we do it, but also flourishing into communities. And so I'm so grateful. It is so incredibly humbling to be in charge and to lead a church uh, that is so incredibly giving uh, to people. And just so that you know, about 6.5% of every um, dollar that comes in goes to missions out of Crossroads. So 6.5% of our budget, hundreds of thousands of dollars every year uh, goes out of our church and into the world uh, to do missions and to bring the gospel into the world. And so I just want to thank Thank you uh, for that today. Um, and uh, with that, I guess said, um, if you are brand new with us, uh, welcome to Crossroads. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads, and I want to welcome all of you also joining online. We are in this series that we're doing called Shifting Gears, where we are looking at and discovering together what it means to connect with God. That one of my uh, most favorite stories in all of Scripture is found in Exodus chapter 33. If you don't know it, I'll just share it real quickly with you. That God comes to Moses, and Moses and the people of Israel have just been, the Hebrew people have just been delivered from Egypt out of slavery, and they're kind of all camping around Mount Sinai. And Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai, and he's having this conversation with God, and God tells him, He says, Moses, I'm going to give you and my people, the Hebrew people, like their wildest dreams. Like, I'm going to give you this country that's just flowing with milk and honey. That is just to say that it has all these abundant resources and that you're going to get really the desires of your hearts. And then he looks at Moses and he says to Moses, he goes, but I'm not going to go with you. Like, I'm going to send an angel alongside with you to get you what it is that you desire, that what it is that you want. And Moses looks at God and he says, no. And it's kind of like this shocking moment in the scripture, like you're looking around for like lightning, like, can you just tell God no like that? Like, is that the way that this works? And Moses looks at God and he says, no, like, like if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. Like, like, I don't care about the land flowing with milk and honey. I care about, about you, that I want to be with you. I want to be in relationship with you. And if you're not going, then we can just camp here. Like, we're just good here. And so Moses begins to plead with God to come with. And if you know the story, Moses and the Hebrew people start heading towards the promised land. It's the land we call Israel today. And as they're heading there, they're not being led by an angel, but rather God. The very presence of God is with them as they move into the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, years later, Augustine, the early church father, would write that this kind of connectedness, this kind of intimacy with God is something that he called witness. It's not just doing life for God, but it's doing life with God. It's, it's knowing God's presence. It's, it's the kind of connection that we long for in our lives when it comes to our relationship with God. It's, it's the kind of intimacy that we desire. It's, it's the kind of, of, of real witness of, of walking with God when it comes to our relationship that we, that we thirst for in our lives. And sadly, sadly for most of us, we kind of wander through this life trying to connect with God, trying everywhere that we can to connect with God, and then ultimately feeling like we never really have. That there's something lacking in our lives where we've, where we've never really felt like we've connected with God well. And that's what this series has been all about, is, is how is it 
Can we discover as a church, as body, as an individual, can we actually connect with God in meaningful and deep ways? Can we actually experience what Augustine called witness? Can we actually experience that kind of intimacy? And so as we've walked through this together, uh, we've used um, uh, a tool from the giant organization, a leadership organization that we've been working with as a staff for the last year called the Five Gears. And uh, we've been going through these five gears every week, and today we're in gear five. Now, before I kind of run through this as a summary again for you and catch you up if you're brand new, just know that so many of you have asked if you could get a copy of this for your own benefit, for your own use. And I just want you to know if you're part of keeping you in the loop, um, we've put this in the keeping you in the loop every week. That's my weekly update that I do. And so the PDF's available. You can just download it. It'll be right there for you and you can use it however you want. But what we've walked through is starting in week one, we looked at gear one. And gear one is what we call the recharge mode. It's this idea of rest where we take time in our day, in our week, in our year to rest before God. The Bible calls this Sabbath. Then week two, we looked at gear two, which is connection mode. This is where we share our deepest dreams. This is where we connect at intimate levels with one another. That the easiest connection when it comes to God is, is through our prayer lives. Then we looked at gear three, which is social mode. This is small chat, this is, or small talk. This is chit chat. This is what happens in the lobbies when we're talking about the avalanche smoking the blues, right? Yeah, like we want the cup, right? And that, like that's social mode. Then last week, Pastor Chris walked us through task mode, gear four. This is where we spend a majority of our lives, multitasking. This is when we're in meetings, working through agendas. This is us picking up the kids, going to the post office. This week, we're going to look at gear five, focus mode, more on that in a bit. And then next week, we're going to wrap all this up with reverse. Every good uh, car, vehicle has a reverse. And so that's the responsive mode. That's when we've impeded upon someone. That's when we've wronged someone. And we've got to kick it in reverse and apologize, or what the Bible calls repent. Now, as we've walked through this, what we've tried to remind you every week is, is that when it comes to these five gears, that they're relevant to our everyday lives, that we are supposed to be and meant to be as humans in these gears every day, that these are how we relate to people, this is how our lives flow, and that there's a very real reality that when we're not in these gears every day, when we fail to shift into one of the gears, that we're actually missing out on pieces and parts of life that are important, that are important to us. And so as we started to put this into our lives, both teaching this to our staff and actually having this go move into our families, we thought, you know what, this isn't just good for earthly relationships, but this is deeply biblical in how we relate to one another when it comes to our relationship with God. That when it comes to our relationship with God, like these are the ways that we connect and that these five gears are, are relevant to our relationship with God. And if you're here today and you're struggling in your connection with God, could it be that you're sitting in a gear when God is waiting to meet you in another gear? That's what this series is, is really all about. It's walking along and learning what does it look like, discovering together what does it look like to connect with God in different ways, in different times in our relationship with him. And our prayer, our earnest prayer, is that as we walk through this, that you would know what it means to be with God, that you would have that intimate connection with him. So over the last four weeks, we've gone through gear one through four. If you've missed any of those messages, you can check them out online or at YouTube, on our YouTube page there. Today, we're going to be in gear five, which is all about the focus mode, all right? Now, the way to understand gear five is to think of those times in your life where you are like intensely focused, 
where you are trying to solve a problem or you're hamming, hammering out a project or you're preparing a presentation. And in those moments, you are like hyper-focused on what you're doing. That's gear five. The gear five are those times in your life where, where you are completely and solely focused on what is in front of you. It's those times where you're completely lost in the work, the task, the project that's before you that you're working on. Now, if I was to be completely honest with you today, I would tell you that gear five is the easiest gear for me to shift into in my life. Like when it comes to gear five, like I shift into gear five so easily, like right in the morning as I wake up, I begin to shift into gear five and I can live my entire life. Just the way my personality is, it's the way that I'm driven and built that the gear five comes so easy for me and I can just spend hours, if not days, just living in gear five and being perfectly content in it. In fact, I live so much of my life in gear five that it actually becomes a hindrance because I don't actually move into the other goals that for for me, oftentimes, I live in gear five to the extreme where I actually neglect these other gears in such a way that I actually mess with some of the relationships in my life. In fact, if you're a podcast listener, Pastor James and I um, are similar in terms of our personalities, particularly when it comes to this gear. And we go deep when it goes to gear five in our latest podcast, when it comes to Pastors on Pop, where we talk about how you know, we live in gear five and some of the effects, both positive and negative, that it's had in our lives as we talk about this at a deeper level. So as we transition this and begin to think about this in our, in our lives with God and connecting with him, almost certainly this is the gear that we think about when we think about connecting with God. That gear five is the one that our minds naturally gravitate to when thinking about connecting with God. That gear five is what the early church called spiritual disciplines. We call those today practices but it was those, these things that, are, that, we, that we are intensely focused on, these things that we do like Bible study, fasting, journaling, solitude, silence, these things that God has given to us to awaken our spirit to the realities of this life as we walk through this life. And so what I want to do today is I want to very simply kind of give you the outline of where we're going, and then we're just going to walk through that together. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's going to be on the screen. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you're certainly welcome to do so. But we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to make just one point. And then out of that point, I'm going to help you understand the disciplines and the role that they play in our lives. And then we're going to wrap this up by giving you homework, all right? So that's where we're going. One point out of Timothy chapter 4, we're going to talk about the disciplines, and then you're going to have some homework this week since school's getting out and everybody, you know, wants homework as we head into summer. So you get that, all right? You're welcome. So this is where we're going to be, all right? So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, 8, and 9. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to this young pastor named Timothy, and here's what he writes to Timothy. He says, uh, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now look at verse nine. He says, the saying, this saying right here is trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance even today. So here's the one point that I want you to walk away with today, that the aim, the goal of your life is to be godly. That the aim of your life is godliness. That's the point of your life. That's the goal of your life is to be godly. 
Now, when we talk about godliness, godliness is another way to describe holiness or sanctification or Christ-likeness, that that's what like, godliness is. And when you come to godliness or understanding godliness, know that there is no higher compliment that can be paid to a Christ follower. There is no higher compliment that can be paid to you as someone who follows Jesus than to be called godly. That you may be a hardy worker or a generous person, a conscientious parent. That you might be a good teacher or a great speaker or a tremendous Christian leader. That Paul says that while some of that or all of that has value in this life, that all of it pales in comparison to the value of godliness. That the aim, the goal, the purpose is for us to become godly. Now, what's fascinating in this is that the words godly and godliness are actually used a relatively few times in our New Testament, like less than 40. And you might be sitting here today going, well, Matt, that sounds like an awful lot, actually, 40. I mean, that's, that's quite a bit. Well, when you read the entirety of the Bible, uh, you may or may not know this, but there's 2,300 verses, more actually, than 2,300 verses dedicated just to money. That when it comes to godliness and godly, it's, it's less than 40 times. And yet as we read the scriptures, it's a whole book about godliness. And anytime we come across the words godly or godliness, it's just pregnant with meaning. I mean, as we're reading through the New Testament, when it's the Apostle Paul wants to boil down the essence of the Christian life, like, like this, is, this is what the Christian life looks like. This is what the Christian life is all about. When he wants to boil it down into a simple statement, he focuses on godliness. In Titus chapter 2, he says this, that through the graces of God that we remove ourselves from the ungodliness, that we move away from the worldly desires and instead we focus on self-control, living upright, godly lives as we wait upon our Lord Jesus to return. Paul says, that's the point. That's the goal. Pursue godliness in our lives. So the question then becomes to us is what does that look like? Like, like if that's the goal, then how do we start to live this out? Well, when looking at godliness, in the original context, in the, in the Greek, it conveys the idea of this personal attitude towards God that results in actions that are pleasing to him. It's this attitude towards God that results in actions that are pleasing to him, or even more simply stated, it's this, is that godliness is devotion in action. Godliness is devotion in action. It's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He's talking about putting our our action, our devotion into action. He says, I don't, I don't want you to focus on these foolish things, on myths, on wise tales. Like, don't go, don't go chasing those things in this life. He says, instead, I want you to train. And when you hear the word train, think of the word exercise. That's what the word is in the Greek. It means to exercise, like physical exercise. Paul says, I don't want you to focus on these silly things, myths and wise tales, like, like don't chase those. Instead, I want you to concentrate. I want you to train. I want you to physically exercise towards godliness. Now, in the Roman culture, much like in the Colorado culture, physical wellness, exercise, being physically fit was an important and a high value that they had in their culture. And we know how this works, don't we? That we all know how this works. A few years ago, four years ago, actually, I was walking through my house and I walked past a mirror and I caught a glimpse of myself and I just had this thought, like what in the world happened to me? 
right? Like, like I was a pretty athletic guy growing up. I mean, I was the captain of the state championship for hockey. Like, like this is who I was. And I'm looking at the mirror going, that's not the guy in the mirror. And so out of that, I made a, a commitment to exercise. I found a gym, I got a coach, and I started training in the ways of exercise. Now, when I showed up the gym, the first thing, one of the first things they had me do was run a mile as like a benchmark of where I was at in terms of health. And that first mile that I ran, I ran in about 12 minutes. Now, four years later, on my best day, I can run a mile in about six minutes and 30 seconds. And my goal before I die, before I make it to heaven, is to run a six-minute mile. Now, that might, that, might, what, that might put me in heaven running a six-minute mile, but, but nevertheless, that's the goal. That's the goal. And when it comes to this, like, we all know how this works, right? Like, like I didn't shave six minutes off my mile time by simply wishing and wanting to run faster. No, what happened is, is I had to make a commitment, a devotion in action, right? Like I have to get my butt up in the morning and go to the gym. I have to listen to the coach. I have to devote myself to the action of exercising in order for me to reach that goal. Paul says, Timothy, listen up. He says, I want you to look at the same work and commitment, the same work and commitment that others put towards their physical exercise. You see that? I want you to put that same kind of effort towards your pursuit of godliness. Timothy, you train yourself with the same kind of intensity, the same kind of focus that Olympic athletes have. You take that kind of devotion and you pursue godliness with it. And the spiritual exercise that leads to our godliness is what we call spiritual disciplines. That spiritual disciplines are the practical way in which we live out the command of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. That the goal of every spiritual discipline is, as the verse teaches, ultimately godliness. Or another way to say it is like this. That the purpose of spiritual disciplines is connectedness, witness, intimacy with Jesus, where we begin to conform to the ways of Jesus, both internally at a heart level and externally in our behaviors, that the spiritual practices are designed, that as we practice them, as we move them into, into the habits of our life, that they are designed to change us where we look more like Christ, both in our hearts, the way that we think, and the way that we behave in this world. And so if the goal is, is godliness, and it happens through the training of this disciplines, I want to take a moment to help you understand what disciplines are and consequently what they are not. That when it comes to spiritual disciplines, I want you to think of them in terms of like practices. That a spiritual discipline is something you do, it's not something you are. Let me say that again for you. That spiritual disciplines are something you do, they are not something that you are. This is so very important. That we can't confuse spiritual disciplines with character qualities, with blessings, with the fruits of the spirit, that we can't confuse these two things. So let me give you an example. That Bible reading is a spiritual discipline, joy is not. Joy is the result, is a godly result, it's a fruit of the spirits. That as practices, the spiritual disciplines are first about doing, and then they're about being. It's about right doing leading to right being. That's what the spiritual practices, the spiritual disciplines 
are all about. That is to say that the purpose of sitting down and opening up your Bible and reading it should result in the godly fruit of joy. That you're reading your Bible so that with confidence that you know that God is always with you, that God is walking with you so that no matter what circumstance you face in this life, whether good or bad, that you can have joy because God is with you and your eternity is secured. That's the value of the discipline lived out in the fruit of the Spirit as a result in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you're probably wondering, like, like what are the spiritual disciplines? Like, Matt, could you like give us a list of the spiritual disciplines? Well, here's just a quick list for you of spiritual disciplines. Bible reading, prayer, singing, both corporately and individually, silence and solitude, fasting, journaling, these are the spiritual disciplines that we see showing up in the scripture that people throughout the church, throughout decades and centuries of the church have used to bring about godliness in their lives. Now, as we talk about these disciplines, it's also important for us to realize that these disciplines are a means to godliness. They are not the end. That these are means to godliness, not the ends. Now, hear me when I say this that you are not automatically godly because you practice the spiritual disciplines. That this is what bent the Pharisees all up. The Pharisees, they read their Bible. In fact, I would argue that the Pharisees read their Bible more consistently and faithfully. They memorized scripture more consistently and faithfully than most everybody in this room, including myself. Like they would put us to shame when it came to their knowledge of the scriptures that they fasted, that they prayed, that they practiced silence and solitude. And yet, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he points to them as the example of ungodliness. He says, this is, this is what it looks like to be ungodly, to which we raise our hand and go, Jesus, I'm not sure I understand. Like, if right doing leads to right being, shouldn't these guys be like the best? Like, like, shouldn't they be the best? And the answer is, yeah, they should have, except for their foundation was broken. See, the foundation of which all this is built upon is Jesus. And if you don't have the foundation right, then the practices are just dead works. The foundation, the center of all of this is Jesus. And when we have the foundation right, then godliness is the result of God's spirit changing and forming us into Christ's likeness. And if our foundation is broken, if Jesus is not at the center then these practices with those motives, whatever those motives would be in that moment, are nothing but dead works. The Pharisees, they did not have the foundation right. You gotta see this because this is so important for us. That we are a lot more as Western churchgoers like the Pharisees than we want to admit. And this is where we get so mixed up. Hear me on this. The goal of the spiritual disciplines is not to see how many chapters you can read of the Bible in a year. The goal of the disciplines is not how beautifully you sound when you're praying or how much weight you lose when you don't eat or how long you can go without talking to someone. That's not the goal of the spiritual disciplines. That we are not necessarily more godly because we engage in those biblical practices. Instead, those biblical practices with Jesus at the center should be the means that result in godliness, that is intimacy, withness, connectedness with the Savior that we love. 
That the disciplines are not mere biblical responsibilities that we do, but rather they are God-given means of experiencing God. That when we regularly, daily shift into gear five and focus like an athlete, then we set ourselves up to experience God in the life that we live, no matter what the circumstances are. So you got the point. The aim of our lives is godliness. You understand to an extent the disciplines. Now here's your homework. As I wrap up this sermon, I want to teach you a practical way of living this in your life. I want to teach you an ancient practice called a rule of life. That a rule of life is this idea or the idea behind it is to weave into our lives a series of habits that shape and form us over time. Now, this is so important for us to get. That when it comes to the way that God usually works in our lives, that is post-conversion, that would be like after we've accepted Jesus, the way that God typically works in our lives is over extended periods of time through mundane and regular activity in our lives that ultimately brings the transformation, the shaping, the forming of our lives where we become more like Christ. Now the problem for us is that we like emotion and we like flash and we like microwave, right? Like we want it to happen now, like the change from here to here now. And while God works like that at times, most frequently he works over extended periods of time through the mundane and regular activities of life to bring the formation where we become more like Christ, even when we don't feel like it's happening. It's like one day you walk past a mirror and you look at a picture of who you once were and now who you are today and you see the change of life. That's the way that God works in our lives. That a rule of life is simply built around mundane and regular habits that we incorporate into our lives that God uses to bring change information into our lives. And here's the deal. You already have habits in your life. You already have regular habits that are shaping you. Whether you want to admit it or not, you already have habits that are shaping your life. If you're like most Americans, probably the first thing that you do in the morning is reach over to your nightstand and grab your phone and scroll through social media in the morning. Whether you want to admit it or not, that is shaping your life. That is forming your life. And what Paul is doing with young Timothy here is he saying, I want you to put habits, practices, disciplines into your life that lead to the formation of godliness. That a rule of life is just a way for us to infuse our lives with focused habits over the long haul that bring about godliness. And so what I want to do with this is I want to give you an example of a rule of life using my own personal rule of life of a way that I'm incorporating all of the gears that we've talked about, gears one through five, into my life as a regular practice of my life. And my hope for showing you this is that you would be able to use it as a model in your own life. Now, as I share this with you, know that I am as inconsistent and messy as you are, all right? Even as a pastor, that this is, this is the model. This is what I'm aiming for. It's not always what I achieve, all right? But the way that easiest way to put together a rule of life is to think about building your life around the love of God in daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly patterns, all right? So when it comes to my life, Sunday through Thursday typically, uh, my days start somewhere between 5 and 5.30 in the morning. 
And the very first thing that I do before I even get out of bed, before I reach for the phone, before I do anything, is I spend about 15 or 20 minutes in prayer. I pray for my family. I pray for the church. I pray for requests. I let God know how great he is. I thank you for the blessings that are in my life. And for the first 15, 20 minutes of my, life, of my day, I just spend time in prayer with God. I get up. I head to the gym. I come back. I help get my kids ready and out the door. And once they're out the door, then I sit down and I spend some concentrated time, gear five time. I shift into gear five and I begin to open God's word and I read his word that currently I'm going through the book of Acts. And the reason that I'm going through the book of Acts is because in a couple of weeks, that will be our next big book series. We're gonna go through the book of Acts together. And as your pastor, I wanna make sure that I'm walking through the book of Acts devotionally before I ever preach it to you. That it's real here before I ever speak it out here. And so I'm just working through the book of Acts and I write down a few thoughts of what God's teaching me and sharing with me an application that I can make for my own life. And then as I wrap that up and I begin to head to the church, I spend time just praying. I shared this a couple of weeks ago. Praying for the day that God has before me. I take my calendar and I just walk through my calendar because I know, I know the demands and the expectations of leading a church outpace my ability to do so. That I can only do it with God sitting with me. And so I pray for that discernment and for that wisdom that throughout my day, again, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, I don't stack meetings just back to back. I give space so that I have some white space just to reset, to rest, to pray, to go into what I'm going to next. And then at the end of the day, I simply end with a moment where I'm just checking my heart, not for the achievements that I've accomplished, but God, how have I done today? How have I done in my relationship with you and my relationships with others? Like, have I, have I been a good witness for you today? How's my heart in these moments? And then before I close up my day's work, I just give all of this work to God knowing that all of it is his. And I don't know about your job but as a pastor, like I could work 24 seven, the jobs never ends. And when I'm ready to go home, I just say, God, this is yours, not mine. Knowing that he's gonna take care of, of this church. As I pull into the driveway at home, I pray another prayer. And I just pray that God, whatever's before me, help me step into that because what's most important is that I'm husband to my wife, Sarah, and dad to my three kids, Theo, Cademan, and Mercy. And I wanna do that well. And so I just pray as I walk into the home that whatever's before me, that I would be able to step into that and be a good husband and a good dad that evening. That's what I do on a daily basis. Then weekly, every Thursday, uh, lunch, uh, breakfast on Thursday mornings is a, is a time of fasting. Thursday is my writing day. It's when I write my sermons. And I've just decided that in the morning that I'm going to fast. I'm going to skip a meal and I'm going to pray as I prepare my heart for whatever God has for me to deliver in the weeks to come to this congregation, to this body. And so I fast on that day, just pursuing God in that. And then on Fridays, I take a Sabbath. I actually put away everything and I don't work on Fridays. And for some of you, this might sound crazy, but I actually put my phone on do not disturb, which means that most of you can't get a hold of me, even if you wanted to. That on the do not disturb, it's blacked out on my email. I can't do email. Only a few calls can get in. And here's the crazy thing. Nothing has ever happened that's been detrimental on a Friday that I've missed. Like it all just continues to go. That that it all just works. And so on my Sabbath, typically I wake up 
And now that my wife Sarah's home a bit more, we go to the gym together, then we go to Doug's Diner and we enjoy one of their amazing breakfast burritos. And then we just say, what is it that looks like today that we want to enjoy together and with God? Like, like shifting into gear three and just enjoying each other's presence. Some, sometimes that looks like a bike ride. Other days it looks like a hike. Sometimes that looks like a nap, right? And, uh, and, and just enjoying that day together and with God. Then monthly, a monthly habit of ours is another spiritual discipline of generosity, of giving, that we give to this church, 10% off the top goes to this church, and we pray that God would give us margin, that we could be generous in other ways, through a compassion child, helping of a missionary, whatever it is that God brings to us, but creating that generosity in our heart. And then yearly, um, I have another spiritual discipline that I do twice a year, and that's in solitude and silence. Now, this is the most difficult discipline for me to practice. Like Pastor Chris, he can go like into the mountains and go camping by himself for like two, three days. And that is like just right below heaven for him. Like you put me in the mountains camping by myself and in an hour I'm talking to a tree. Like it's like, that's just what's gonna happen. Like silence and solitude is not a big part of my life. And so what I've tried to do is twice a year uh, through the Abbey Project at the Denver Seminary, uh, they have a silence and um, solitude retreat up at Mount Cabrini. We're just a day. You go up and you put away the voices and the loudness of this world and you allow that to fade so that you can hear for God. And so I've tried to begin to incorporate into that, that into my life yearly, twice a year. And then the other yearly thing is, is to make sure that vacation, rest, year one is a part of it. Where I get away just to have fun with my family, where, where work is far away from my mind and that I just engage in what does it look like to rest in the goodness of God as I play with my family that that's my rule of life. That a rule of life is simply getting out a piece of paper and going, how am I going to intentionally weave God into my day, my week, my month, my year in a focused way? And what you'll find interesting about this is that when you start to list this out, that none of these habits are adding any more time to your day. You're just replacing an old habit with something new that's ultimately gonna connect you with God, that, that leads you to the intimacy that you desire with God. So here's my homework for you, is that I want you to, to grab a piece of paper, and you don't have to put a whole full rule of life like I have, but just start with one thing. Just ask God this week, today, if I could change one thing in my morning routine to be more connected with you, what would it be? What would that habit be? Would I trade out my phone and my social media scrolling for 20 minutes of prayer with you? Whatever it was, whatever it is, what is that one thing that I'm gonna shift out this week in order to begin to create a rule of life so that I can walk in deeper intimacy with you? All right, that's all I have for you. I'm gonna pray, then we'll do communion together. Father, Lord, I thank you. And, um, and honestly, it's a little bit mind-blowing <laughs> to think that you, the God of the universe, wants to have a relationship with us wants to be intimate with us, to be connected with us. And so God, I pray that that would be, that we would experience that. Lord, that in our spiritual practices and in these disciplines, Lord, that it would pave the way for godliness, intimacy, witness with you. And so Lord, I pray that would be true of every single one of us. Lord, that we would look at the habits of our lives that are already shaping us and that we would begin to replace those habits with habits that lead us to godliness. God, we know that you're good and that you hear us. And so we're excited to see and to experience what that looks like together. Lord, at the same time, I, I pray, 
Lord, for those here who maybe his foundation is not built upon you, who you're whispering to even right now. Lord, I just pray that they would know that every single one of us has sin and just junk in our lives that keeps us far from you, but that your son came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross so that we might have life and that we bring our sins to, to you, knowing that they are forgiven and in unforgiveness that we are made children of you and that we're connected as a father is to a child, to you, our good and great God. And so Lord, I pray for those in the room who, who are hearing your whisper now, or that they would respond to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. As we head to communion,